Welcome to MicroCollege, a podcast exploring innovative, place-based, and humanly scaled responses to the crises in higher education, meaning, and discourse in our time. Everyone knows that colleges and universities are at a breaking point, but what can be done? I'm Jacob Hunt, the director of Thoreau College, a micro-college in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Join us each week as we tackle this question head-on. Welcome to MicroCollege. This week on the podcast, we are really excited to have as our guest, Dr. Ilana Redstone. Dr. Ilana Redstone is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She's the founder of the Diverse Perspectives Consulting Firm and the president of the Mill Center for the Advancement of Critical Thinking, which is now part of the University of Austin in Texas. She's the co-author of Unassailable Ideas, How Unwritten Rules and Social Media Shape Discourse in American Higher Education, and the creator of the Beyond Bigots and Snowflakes video series, which you can check out on YouTube. She's also a faculty fellow at the Heterodox Academy and a visiting fellow at the Mercatus Program for Pluralism and Civic, Civil Exchange. Thank you for joining us today, Ilana. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I've been listening to you. I definitely need to update my bio. <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, is there something you'd like to add to that? That that or that's changed? No, I mean the Mill Institute is so my title there is faculty director, okay. um, and uh, it's the Mill Institute at UATX now. Okay. Um, that's I, but the rest of it's mostly right. It's just it's just funny that I it's yes it needs to be updated, but that but it's perfectly fine. Great, thank you. In any case, yeah, yes. you, you've got a, you've done a lot of interesting things. So we're excited to talk to you. Um, thank you. So I'm glad to be here. If you've listened to the podcast, you'll know that um, we'd like to ask about people's biographies. Mm -hmm. uh, so if we could start off, if you could reflect back on the time when you were a college student, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, um, where were you? What were the big influences on you at that time? And and what what stood out as as, as shaping you as, as, as an adult? Interesting. Okay. Um, so I went, did my undergraduate at the university. So I'm originally from the East Coast. I'm from Western Massachusetts. And I did my bachelor's degree at the University of New Hampshire in Durham, New Hampshire. Um, and I, I don't think I was, I don't think I knew what I wanted to do in college. Um, I don't, I'm probably not unique in that regard. Um, I was not a, I don't think I was a standout student, certainly not early on. Um, and I spent my junior year in college in Southern Spain, which, um, which was great, which was in a, in a lot of ways. Um, and so I ended up majoring in Spanish, but mostly because I was good at languages and, and I, I mean, I liked Spanish, um, but mostly I had a lot of credits in it. Um, and so, I, but I don't think I, I don't think I sort of visioned, envisioned myself as a, you know, a Spanish teacher or something like that. So, um, so that was college, I would say. And then I spent a lot of time. I spent a lot of time after college traveling. Um, I was very fortunate in the sense. I mean, this was in the 90s. College was also a lot cheaper. Mm -hmm. But I was really fortunate in the sense that I didn't come out with loans. Um, and so um, thanks to the support of my father and um, and so I didn't have loans, which let me travel. And so I, I was able to, so I, for example, I taught English while living in Mexico in, in Orizaba. Um, I taught English in South, this is also back when you could do these things before everyone was just doing it online. Um, I taught English in South Korea. Um, and ultimately I joined, I mean, I think bringing the most relevant pieces, ultimately I joined the Peace Corps 
um, in the late 90s. Um, and so I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Togo in West Africa, so in between Ghana and Benin. Um, and I think that um, one of the things, I mean, I think lots of people have sort of transformative experiences in the Peace Corps for all kinds of different reasons. I think for me, one of the things that I took away from it was that the problems that we care most about are really complicated. Um, <laughs> even something like Peace Corps, which is, you know, which raises questions about, you know, are we, um, you know, are we propping up a corrupt government? Are we, are we fostering complacency? Are we creating dependency? All of these questions that I don't think are unique to me. And to be clear, like, I don't think I arrived at answers to these. It wasn't like I came to some conclusion, oh, we should all hightail it out of here. Um, it was just, it was just sort of the aha moment was more just realizing that like, oh crap, this is actually kind of complicated. Yeah. Um, and so that's, I think something that's carried through to the work that I do now. So that's the background. So I'll 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 stop there. But yeah, that's kind of the background potted history. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, certainly what stands out there is is the travel and the and your Peace Corps experience. And mm -hmm. I think yeah, I think just I'd love to follow where you were going there with that. You know, that international you know cross cultural experience. How does that inform your work with just diversity of perspectives and discourse and all of the things you're working on now? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, the the sort of bigger lesson was the one that I mentioned, which I'll come back to in a second. I think the, the smaller, smaller, I mean, maybe that's the wrong word, but sort of the first lesson was just that the world is really just full of people, at least in my, what I saw. Um, the world seems to be just full of people trying to kind of do the best they can and get, make their way through life as best they can. Um, and then the kind of the, the other piece of that was, again, this piece about the things that we care about being complicated. Um, and that's really something. So when I, in the work that I do now, which is really sort of focused on, which I'm sure we'll talk about, which is really focused on kind of how we think and communicate on really contentious issues. Um, and part of that comes from this sort of baseline assumption that things are just complicated. Like, and and um, I frame that in the work that I do now, it's sort of framed in the language of the certainty trap, um, and which is just what it sounds like, that certainty is a trap, um, and that it, and the sort of the impacts of that in terms of how it shapes in a, in a not a good way, how we think and, and then subsequently how we communicate with other people about really heated issues. And by that, I mean, you know, issues that touch topics like um, identity, fairness, intent, harm, freedom, inequality, all of the sort of most contentious topics that people think about. Yeah, you've written that you think you've observed that higher education produces too much uniform and simplistic thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think I stand by that. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I mean, I do think that it's too much. Sim and the thing is, is that the, the, the problem with certainty and so it's one thing to sort of point out and say, look, like these, we've oversimplified things. And most people are not, maybe most is the wrong word, but many people will agree with that. But it's a lot easier once you're at the point where you've identified the thing that you, and you've sort of put words to the thing that you're feeling certain about, that's kind of driving your judgment. And that's sort of sitting, and I can give you an example in a minute, like, you're already sort of halfway there, maybe not all the way there, but you're sort of halfway there. And so it's much harder 
to get at the things that we, the questions that we behave as though we have answers to that we never, when we never bothered asking the question. Um, and so that's, that's the piece that's actually, I think, harder for people. Um, and so, but, but so I think there's a kind, there's a couple of ways to sort of correct for that. One is, one is just recognizing that when we tend to, when we demonize and judge people who disagree about contentious on sort of these heated topics, it's always coming from something, some principle, value, um, or belief that you're holding is certain. Um, and so because certainty is, it is the thing that basically gives you the justification to judge someone. I mean, with that, you have, it's sort of, there's sort of a tautology there. Um, and that there's value in naming it. And then in naming it, sort of the, 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 the sort of follow on to that is that there aren't any ideas, beliefs, values, et cetera, that are exempt from, and this is probably very, I imagine very consistent with Thoreau College, like that are exempt from criticism, questioning, examination, none. Um, so like what this looks like in, you know, when I work with students, for example, one, one, one situation that comes up. So in sociology, um, you know, higher education in general is largely, is, is very skewed in terms, you know, in terms of obviously in terms of its political orientation and then sociology in particular tends to be quite, there's not a lot of political diversity, just, I'm not saying anything new here. Um, and so one of the things that we talk about, um, partly again, because it's a sociology class is inequality. And we spend a lot of time talking about inequality. Um, and one of the things that I've done with students, this is just to demonstrate sort of how this idea of sort of walking people to this, the important, recognizing the importance of uncertainty and sort of the work that it's doing in the background. So on, on inequality, like if I ask a room full of students and I say, you know, you're all, you've all had some educational success. You're all, you're all sitting here. Like, I mean, you all know people, you all know people from your high schools who didn't get into the U of I or who didn't, uh, who didn't go to college at all. Yes, of course, there are some who probably went to elite colleges and whatever, but you all know people who didn't, um, you know, who, who, who didn't have it, who didn't have the academic success that you're enjoying. Um, and so to what do you attribute your academic, your success? To what do you attribute the fact that you're sitting here in this classroom? And so they'll give answers like, you know, I worked really hard or I studied a lot or I went to class or I had a really inspirational teacher or, you know, my parents would have killed me if I, you know, didn't do didn't get good grades or I had a well-funded school or, you know, whatever. And because it's a sociology class, a lot of what um, if they don't bring it up, one of the things I'll bring up is I'll say, what about, you know, people will talk about structural causes, structural discrimination, structural racism, things like this. And, and setting aside for the moment, like, can we actually, can we define, like, what does that mean? What do the words mean? So just set that aside for a second. Um, and they'll say, you know, yep, that too, this makes sense. Um, and then you can ask the question, well, can you put these, can you rank order these things? in terms of how they contributed to, again, just we're just starting with the observation that you've had some success because you're sitting in this classroom. So can you, and we've talked about all these factors that are contributing, can you put them in some kind of order? Um, and so the, the aha moment for them is really, I mean, to, hopefully, is that they can't do it. And it's not because they haven't learned how to do it yet, but it's because you, it can't be done 
in any meaningful way. Mm -hmm. um, and so that recognition that you don't know and sort of that, that what, and you can't know and sort of what does that mean for how we talk about or how we think about something that lots of people care about and rightly so like educational inequality. Um, and so things like that, that's sort of the, that's sort of the area that I'm interested in, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the classic Socratic insight about wisdom, right? Not knowing is, is, is much harder than, than thinking, you know, mm -hmm. right? That, that's, that's been a powerful insight. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, you, you've been an educator, you've been a professor, a teacher for, for, for a long time now. And I'm wondering if you've seen changes in students, changes in the way higher, higher education is that the way it works along these lines in the course of your career. You know, it's an interesting question. I know like a lot of people will sort of what people, I know people look back, you know, we're in 2022 and they'll look back and they'll point to the 2016 presidential election. And sometimes also the other sort of turning point that people will point to is to around 2013, 2014 in terms of changes in, you know, people have done these studies about, you know, language that's used in the media and sort of, if you, you know, if you look for a search, if you search for something like, you know, white privilege or structural racism or something, sort of just the frequency with which those terms have used, there's a real shift starting around 2013, 2014. Um, so I'm, so I am sort of sensitive to that. I think for me, um, part of what I noticed, I don't know that there was any sort of singular moment. Um, I think that it was just over time, partly coming from this place, sort of my priors is, are, you know, one of my priors is that just nothing is simple. Like social <laughs> problems just aren't simple. They don't have simple causes. They don't have simple, like, and so part of what I noticed was just conversations, whether it was in my own department, whether it was with students, um, and in the kind of the broader discourse, and I would say even before 2013, um, where it just seemed like there were assumptions being made. Like, so here's, I'll give, just give you an example. Like if we're talking about um, a student who leaves, who a graduate student who leaves, right? Just this, I'll just, and I'll say this is a hypothetical. Like if we're talking about a graduate student who leaves, and let's say you have a, um, a black student who leaves the program. And so the assumption in that kind of conversation is that the student left because they didn't have, there weren't enough black faculty to mentor the student. Mm -hmm. um, so that seems like a perfectly plausible explanation to me. I'm, I don't know that that's right though. Like I don't, I mean, I, I just don't have, I don't have, I, I don't, and I don't think other people, you know, in this, in the scenario I'm painting had, have more access to, let's say we all have the same information. The assumption is that, again, that that's the cause and then, which has a very specific solution that you need to write, like it has a very specific hiring prescription. And so the, so when I say like, we are assuming that we have answers to questions, it's sort of like, well, wait, that's, do we even know that that's what's going on? So that kind of thing, sort of in various situations, um, you know, I remember, I can remember teaching, I used to, my original focus in academia was on U.S. immigration. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I taught, I, for a while I taught a course on U.S. immigration and I used to, I do remember at some point, and this would also have been before 2012 and 2013, like immigration used to be something that um, there was, 
I mean, people had sides and there was, you know, the sort of conservative view and the liberal view and whatever, but like it did largely cross party lines. Mm -hmm. Like if you go back, you know, 15 years or something, positions on immigration did, they weren't quite so, for example, you would have, you know, a sort of quote conservative argument that was in favor of higher levels of immigration because, um, you know, just wanting less interference in the markets. Right or something, right? Or you would have a you know a sort of liberal perspective on restricting restrictions to immigration that was driven by a desire to sort of protect you know domestic work the domestic workforce or and so there was just there was more there was more it it wasn't so cut and dried and so that like things like that I think have changed um, where yeah. it's like you're either on this side or you're on this side um does it seem that i mean that that like uh kind of reduction of political perspective into party right where everyone has to line up on all the same issues that's yeah it's another version of simplification right the, the ambiguity of having a person who is but i remember growing up here in western wisconsin mm -hmm. when we had a, had a congressional election where there was a um a pro-choice republican and a pro-life democrat <laughs> and it's hard to imagine that happening right now right people yeah people really confused what which, what does it mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, which gets into all these really interesting questions about identity, right? Like, and sort of, and group identity and, and how we define who we are and how we think about who we are and what are the most salient characteristics that sort of make you a person. I mean, you can think about it in terms of political orientation, but it's the same, I mean, the same questions come up when, with respect to, you know, race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, like how do you, how do we think about who we are and how should we think about who we are and what are the sort of costs and benefits to leaning a little bit more this way or leaning a little more this way or um and i think we just really don't do a good job of having those kinds of conversations and i i'm certainly aware that like it's not everyone's cup of tea to sit around and do this you know level of navel navel gazing <laughs> um but but I mean, certainly on college campuses and even in high schools, like, I mean, there is, we could be doing a lot better than we are, even with the understanding that not everyone wants to sort of, you know, scratch their chin quite as much as, as maybe I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. This question about, about complexity and simplification is really, is important to, to our project here. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, putting sort of hot button button like political and social issues on one side. I think that definitely is part of it. But the the, the type of programs that we are doing here involve all kinds of uncertainty and ambiguity um, when you're dealing with nature, right? Mm -hmm. With the weather, with animals, with plants. Mm -hmm. um, and also another important part of what we are doing here is participatory governance. So practical decision making, you know, dealing with people's, you deal with, with sometimes the subconscious responses to things, even practical things like quiet hours and, and you know, meal planning and things like that. Um, I certainly have observed in my career working in those kinds of environments um, like this one, that my sense is that young people are, are more uncomfortable with that level of uncertainty. And it, it yeah, showed up yeah. actually compared to 20 years ago when I was starting, I have more young people asking me as teacher, as a, as an administrator to, to make, more black and white rules about things, which is totally yeah. flipped from from yeah. the other side, right? There, there, that 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 the uncertainty produced by a situation where I say, this assignment is open ended, right? For example, is something that that my sense is that people are less comfortable with. 
Really? So do you see that? So I'm just curious. So do you, you see that primarily manifest in student response to um, open-ended assignments or how does that play out in terms of participatory governance, for example? Um, well, I think the, it's harder for groups of students to, to be presented with an open-ended uh, puzzle, right? Yeah. How do we do this thing? How do we stage this event, let's say, or, or how, do we, how do we organize this project, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of uncertainty there. We, the group needs to sort themselves out into different roles. They need to make some, some key kind of decisions. Um, my sense is that they need a lot more guidance and, and they, they tend to default to looking for an authority figure. Hmm. In, in, even on a small level on a project like that. So, but you're saying, but it's not just, it sounds like what you're saying, it's not just that they're looking for an authority figure, but they're doing it more than they did 15 years ago. I, I that is my sense. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, and I, that, that's a big question to me why that is. Um, I just, I, I'm wondering if it has to do with, there are higher levels of uncertainty in general in the world, right? Things certainly in the last few years with the pandemic, everyone's mm -hmm. scheduled and lives being upended and, and the other kind of social upheavals you've mentioned people are, yeah, there's a sense of looking for security in any form of structure that they can find. And that may be also in an ideological structure, right? If yeah, I can know where I sit, then I know yeah, something about the world. You know, it's interesting. I was, uh, I went to a, like a conference, a small conference last, I don't last, um, last week or the week before. And um, it was one of the things that came up, so we were talking about some of this certainty stuff, and one of the things that someone suggested was the possibility that um, the desire, the sort of heightened tenant, this, if to the extent that my, that this analysis is right, or that our analysis collectively here is right, that it's increased in the last, say, 15 years, that it's um, a response to the sort of fire hose of information that people are on the receiving end. I'm not even talking about myths or disinformation. That's a second, but just it just without even separating the wheat from the chaff, like just the fire hose of information that you are constantly receiving um, from the internet and everything online, and that this sort of the reaction again i don't know if, what i think about this but the idea is that the reaction to that or part of the reaction to that is to simplify like oh my god i'm standing in front of this fire hose like i need to simplify this even yeah. more i don't i don't know how you would test that i'm not sure how that's a t like i mean you could see that i'm sure you can see the correlation over time like you know complexity and like you could probably measure that but even that wouldn't you know obviously demonstrate some kind of causal link but it is an interesting theory yeah i, I just a manifestation of this. I was eight or 10 years into my high school teaching career mm -hmm. before I heard the word rubric, mm. right? And and now I have students asking for rubrics, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you, you know, and that, and which is, yeah, a structured way of responding to things, which I think there's a lot of strength to that, right? And clear expectations, all mm -hmm. of that. But it's interesting. It was not something that I heard, you know, students asking for, you know, in the, in the past. And I think that what you're saying, the fire hose of information, we kind of need some way to sort that so we, we're looking for for some some cheat sheet basically where to put things yeah that's so interesting that is actually that's an interesting example i don't think i ever made like a grading rubric before like in the last you know few years yeah, yeah. <laughs> i never thought about it that way but yeah yeah i mean it's an interesting idea so i don't know again i don't know if there's a causal arrow to be pointed to there but maybe <laughs> Nice project. So yeah, maybe we could take a step back here. So if we, we've got this, uh, what you're observing is, you know, a, a you know, uh, a problem with, you know, the 
an uncomfortableness with with complexity and oversimplification, um, and yeah, a certainty trap. Um, can you can you play that out? Just you know, lay this out. Why is that uh, something we should be concerned about? What impacts does that have on education and us as a society? If that's the case. Yeah, I mean, I think you could actually you could. So there's a couple of ways sort of into this conversation. One of them is just you know, there's certainly polling. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but there's certainly polling data that looks at, you know, tries to capture these measures of political polarization, which again, which is sort of, we need to be more precise about what that means. Um, but think questions that will ask people about, you know, do you think that members of the other political party are immoral sort of, um, I don't think they actually ask, do you think they're horrible people? But like, they'll certainly, I know there's at least one poll that asks specifically about like, are they immoral? Are they dishonest? Are I think unintelligent? Um, so things like that, and all of those percentages have gone up and are and are and they're high. I mean, if I'm remembering, they're sort of in 60, 70 percent um, on both sides, like going in both directions. And so you can look at that kind of polling data. So and so, like if we're starting with that and we're saying this judgment comes from certainty, right? Like that is that is where it comes from. And so, in terms of the impacts on society, so that well, what are the impacts of political polarization? Well, I mean, there's so there's, you know, arguably a one of them being sort of I think there's an argument to be made that it pushes people further to extremes, right? The more polarization you have, the more siloed people are. This is sort of the group. Then you get into this group polarization. This is Cass Sunstein's work about you know um, that groups when they're more siloed tend to come out with even more extreme views than when they you know, than when they're, than when they're sort of exposed to a diversity of perspectives. Um, you know, I think, I think there's a whole separate, I think there's a whole separate piece of this that has to do with public trust. There's sort of social trust, right, which gets to some of the political polarization. Social trust also, I think, with the absence of social trust weakens communities, right? When you have politically, which many political, many communities are politically diverse to, to a greater or lesser extent. And so you have a decline in social trust. And then there's also sort of public trust, right? Which certainty also erodes in the sense that when you have institutions that make, that use language of certainty rather than confidence, um, that also leads to an erosion of public trust. So, and so specifically institutions might be things like the media, higher education, school, K through 12 education, um, all of these things. And this is real again, like just a function of using the language of certainty rather than confidence. And if you look at an example, think about for instance, you know, COVID. Um, and so how we talk about and by we, in this case, I'm talking about an institution, but how our institutions talk about, you know, yes, wear masks, they work, they will protect you from COVID. Vaccines, vaccines will prevent COVID. No, they won't prevent COVID. They will, you know, reduce the likelihood of getting a severe case. It's, you know, there are no harmful side effects. Or actually, there are, could be some harmful side effects, but they're really improbable and they're really unlikely. But we can't actually say that they don't exist. Like, all of this stuff, it all matters. And it's all, but, but you make one claim I mean, let alone 500 of them, like, or what I didn't count, but like you make one claim and then it's sort of like, well, wait, that's not actually right. And, and how do you get to the, that's not right. Well, either sometimes, you know, we get new information later on that sort of changes things. And sometimes people just, 
if someone makes a claim that you sort of, in, and they and they claim something to be certain and you have sort of an intuition that like, wait, that's not, you know, like if I say, if I say, you know, there was this research study that, that this was an actual research study. That's then one of the claims was that um, taking more baths reduces stress, right? Like this is a silly example. It's not a mm -hmm. controversial issue or anything, but if I say, yeah, go take a bath, it'll reduce your stress. Well, wait, what? Like, I mean, there's some, like, you may not think of that in the language of certainty, but you might be like, well, wait, how do you know that that's like, how do you know? And, and so that, and that now I'm just talking about sort of a causality piece, but like, well, wait, wait, okay. Well, there's a study that says that, you know, having more baths reduces stress, but, but maybe just the people who were less stressed to begin with actually were more likely to take baths and it has nothing to do with the bath, like, you know, or whatever. Like, so being more careful, it's not just as simple as being careful. Part of it is about being careful about the language that we use, but the language, this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, the language that we use most of the time is a reflection of how we're thinking and sort of clear thinking leads to clear, well, clear writing and also clear speaking. Um, and sort of, we're not in the habit of being particularly clear or precise about, and so pulling, we, and we can do better. Like it's not, it's not even actually that hard. It, the hard part is, the hard part is in realizing that like, it's the stuff that you, it's the, it's the, um, what's the expression? It's, it's the unknown unknowns. It's the things that you don't even know that you're, it's like, you know, it's there. If you have that sort of visceral tendency to judge, or you think something's really simple, um, it's sort of like, you know, that you have to sort of recognize that that's coming from certainty. Um, and then it's like, you know, that it's there and you have to find it. Um, one of the things that I would say, just as a point of clarification, one of the questions that comes up sometimes is someone will say, well, are you to me, like, are you just saying that you know, any arguments as good as any other, like, should we be teaching, you know, intelligent design in our schools instead of evolution? And so I guess I would make two points just to anticipate those questions. One is that there's nothing in what I'm saying that says that every explanation has an equal probability of being true, right? Like there's just, this is, this is in some ways at a basic level, there's probabilistic thinking here. So there's nothing that suggests that that's true. Um, the other thing I would say about sort of every opinion being as valid as any other, when I say that part of where we need to get to is this recognition that there are no ideas, beliefs, values, et cetera, that are exempt from criticism, questioning, or examination. One way to think about that is if I bake you, uh, you know, a batch of cookies, Right. Like, and I say, and we're, and we're, so I could bake a batch of cookies. You and I could have a conversation about what's in those cookies. We could have a very sort of boring, I could tell you it's butter and there's flour and there's sugar and there's salt and like chocolate chips and whatever. And that's, that doesn't mean the fact that you and I are not talking about whether the cookies are delicious or whether they taste like crap or whatever, doesn't mean that someone else can't come in and evaluate the cookies and say whether they taste like crap or whether they taste good. Now I would want to know like, well, what do you mean they taste good? Like you like things that are sweet or you like them, you like this amount of chocolate chips or that, whatever. Like those would still be subject to questioning and examination in terms of understanding, but those are just fundamentally different. No. So in other words, the fact that I'm saying actually nothing is exempt from questioning criticism, it's almost like we're talking about the ingredients of the cookies, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a place for someone to come in and say, these cookies taste like garbage. Like, 
Mm -hmm. um, yes. If that makes sense. Sure. There, there's there's different categories of knowledge, right? There's right. quantitative knowledge. There's 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 sort of quantitative knowledge. There's factual things like that. Yeah. I think what you're you're saying raises some important. You know, these are theory of knowledge, epistemological kind of mm -hmm. questions. You know, to me, it seems that if you if you do have a notion of there is an objective truth somewhere to be determined mm -hmm. that actually makes this this viewpoint diversity and this this quality of discourse especially important right because that's that's actually how you find you, you get to closer mm -hmm. to some sense of, of of that understanding of reality whereas if it is undeterminate you know we, we can't actually you know, come to any agreement there is a purely relativistic situation mm -hmm. and it just has to do with power right it has to do with who's mm -hmm. able to to you know exclude other voices and, and enforce their perspective yeah I mean I think one way to think about it is um you know one way that I've sort of tried to think about it is in the following with the following metaphor that you know we think about when we think about the world and how we're sort of viewing social interactions and different events almost as though we're looking out a window and we're sort of seeing these things unfold and one of the things that happens when we're looking out a window like if you were sitting here at this table with me and i said oh you know and you had we both had our glasses on and whatever and i said oh look at the bird sitting on the fence or something like presumably you would see the bird sitting on the fence in the same you know the little black bird or blue bird or whatever it is um and you would see what i'm seeing and i think a more precise way to think about it is that we're seeing the world reflected in a mirror, not because we're seeing ourselves. That's one thing that mirrors do if you're standing in front of them. But because one of the other things we know about mirrors is that the only kind of mirror that reflects, that precisely reflects in proportion and distance what's in front of it is a perfectly flat plane of glass, um, right? And any curvature to the glass, whether it's concave, convex, severe, mild, whatever, distorts the image that's being reflected. This is why you have fat mirrors and skinny mirrors and everything else. And so, mm -hmm. um, and so the idea is that all certainty curves the glass, right? And so, and so realizing that, and, and, and sometimes we choose to live with that, right? Like there may be cases where, you know, if I, um, if I say like, let's say I happen to be in a situation where I observe someone stealing a car, like, or I, or I assume they're, they're, they're taking a car without permission that doesn't belong to them. Um, and I think, well, that's a horrible thing to do. Like I then, and then I'm judging that, that even that judgment that where does that, and this is a simple example, where does that judgment comes for? It comes from some, my core belief or whatever, that stealing is wrong. Right. And that's fine. Like, I don't have to let go of that in order to say, okay, well, what would it be like if I didn't think that was stealing was wrong? Like, what would that be like? Like, is that something that's, is there, can I imagine a world where stealing isn't right? I mean, I don't have to let it go in order to be able to ask that question, if that makes sense. Right, you need to be aware that you're looking at a mirror and you're choosing it. That's, that's yes, and that's my that's my belief that's my principle that stealing is wrong is, is essentially curving the glass, but that's fine. Like I can name it and I can point to it and I can say, I'm gonna hold on to that thing. Yeah. But we can still examine it and question it and sort of kick the tires metaphorically. Yeah, yeah, that really that that really resonates with me. Certainly, as an educator, I, I think of a lot of times what I'm doing is is helping people be aware of their paradigms, right? Their mm -hmm. their the lenses that they're using, and and ultimately, I think you know I feel most successful when people are able to 
students are able to start to choose. Yeah, this is I'm gonna you know this is this is this is the lens that I'm using, and it, and it is is there's a good reason for me to use it, mm -hmm. right? and and then if necessary to change that, right? And that's um, I think you know like we mentioned COVID, and I think biology is especially prone to this, right? There's a very like quantitative, you know, measurement-based way of approaching that's important for understanding the way human bodies and biology works or agriculture mm -hmm. is the same thing. But if you divorce that from social factors or from qualitative value, aesthetic kind of factors, right? And you're, you're, you're only using one lens uh, out of those, then then you're probably, you know, you're, you're not at least freely choosing. You're not really um, using this full set of tools in the toolbox, at least. Yeah. I mean, and frankly, like I don't have, um, I have way more questions than I have answers. <laughs> Yeah. You know, like, I mean, if you think about the sort of biology, I mean, one of the one of the ways people will off that, that particular issue that you're talking about plays out is when people think about the relationship between biology and gender. Right. Mm -hmm. And sort of one of the things that, that one of the questions I, I don't have, I'm, I don't have really much of an interest in taking a particular stand one way or the other, but I do find the questions interesting in the sense that if we can say, right, I mean, I, like, if we can say that, so say gender is divorced from biology, right? Like this gets into the certainty piece. If we could say like gender is entirely a social construct, that there's power, there's enormous power in that. I don't mean power in the sense of like people grabbing for power, but I mean in terms of social change, right? There's enormous power in that because if something is socially constructed, then we can socially deconstruct it. And we can, you know, and the way that you know when you're there is when you, you know, when in theory, like when there are 50% of nurses who are men and there are 50% of construction workers who are women. And like, that's how we know when we're there if we think that gender is entirely a social construct. That's one world. There's a world where you, I don't know a lot of people who are making the argument that gender is entirely biological. My, my sort of read on the situation is there's sort of gender is a social construct and then there's or maybe more of a social construct and then there's gender is more or partly or whatever. But I don't know that there's, it's almost like the abortion thing. Like, I don't know that anyone's actually, or not anyone, but few people are sitting literally on the extremes. Um, but those get into, you know, how you think about that. So let's say, you know, to the gender and biology question, like if you think that it's partly a social construct, partly biological, it raises a lot more complex questions about, you know, do you think that, well, how do we know when we're there, when we've sort of really eliminated gender norms and pressure for gender role, specific gender roles and whatever, we can no longer expect 50-50 up and down the occupational hierarchy because we, if we're acknowledging that part of it is traced to biological differences and it gets much more complicated. Again, I'm not like, there are people trying to sort of haggle out the answer to that question. What I'm more interested in is how do we talk about it? And the fact that if we make any of those claims with certainty, that's where it leads to judgment. And the reality is, is that we don't, now that may be a question, maybe we do know one day, maybe there's one day where we do sort of, we can map that all out and it's all, and it's all known, like in the sense that there was a point when we didn't know that, you know, water turns to ice at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It, it, that's, it still turned to ice at 32 degrees Fahrenheit even before we knew that it did, right? And so maybe there's some day where our knowledge about gender and biology, you know, maybe there isn't, I don't know. We're not there now, but it's the claims of certainty and viewing our knowledge as certain rather than provisional that leads to the judgment, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely.
Yeah. Yeah. So you've not only, you know, you've done a lot of thinking about this, you've written books, you've written articles, you've given talks, um, but you've also created curriculum, right? And, mm -hmm. and I take it to be quite, quite popular and, and, uh, and curriculum that, that people are interested in. And um, people can get a taste of that in this Beyond Bigots and Snowflakes um, series on YouTube. Um, but maybe can you, can you talk about this? How do you bring these ideas into the classroom working with, with, with college students and, and other people? Yeah, I mean, so a couple of thoughts. So I teach, a, right now I'm teaching, in the fall, I usually teach a course in social problems, which is the one that I'm teaching now. So our semester ends next week. Um, and usually in the spring, for the past couple of years, I've taught a course called Bigots and Snowflakes, um, sort of about political polarization. And um, I won't be teaching that in the spring of 2023 because I'm off from teaching. I have a teaching release, but um, normally that's sort of what I'm doing. And I think the way that I do that, I mean, we bring in different readings. Um, so for example, in the social problems class, they read um, the first book that the book that we started out with was Hans Rosling's Factfulness. Um, and so that's, that was kind of our starting point. And then they read different pieces of, I mean, they, you know, we read a little bit of, actually we listened to a talk by Thomas Sowell that was a starting point for a conversation. They read some of Eduardo Benilla Silva's book, Racism Without Racists, um, and then different articles and things over the course of the semester. Um, and really, but it's about sort of the discussion and sort of, and, and how we talk about all of these problems. Because again, like that's way more important to me than can you tell me what, you know, the, you know, the unemployment rate for, you know, women, unmarried women between the ages of 34 and 39. Like I just, I, you know, okay, yes, that's important, but it's not, I, I'm much, I'm much more interested in sort of working with them on how they're thinking about topics. So, you know, right now, um, I'll come full circle on this question, but right now, like to the students in the social problems class are submitting paper topics. Um, for the end of the semester. And so they all submit their topics and I'll basically respond to their topic suggestions with questions. Like what is the tension that you're gonna, it's not, you don't just get to pick the social problem that you wanna sort of inform the world about. Like what is the tension that you're looking at? Like what what is it? What are the questions that it brings up? And I'll usually make some suggestions and sort of, so that's kind of the way that I'm trying to work. And through a lot of, through a lot of discussion, and then the other thing that I would say is that I'm also, with the amazing support of the Center for uh, Innovation and Teaching and Learning at the U of I, I've been in the middle of creating a um, a course, a MOOC for Coursera on the certainty trap stuff, um, oh, which should be I hopefully done late spring 2023. So that would be um, another another way into this for interested parties. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm especially curious about how you begin these courses, you know, in a way that here at, at Thoreau College and other mm -hmm. micro colleges we've been talking about, right, we're, we're building, you know, a, a kind of intensive version of an intentional community where, you know, young people are coming together. We have had quite a bit of, you know, viewpoint diversity, you could say, mm -hmm. in that group of students, um, but they're also, they're, they're literally living together, they're working mm -hmm. together with their hands, they're cooking meals together, they're going on camping trips, and they're talking about ideas and politics and, and, their, and their life. So this is a real like live practical question. How do you create an environment where these kinds of conversations can, can happen? What, are the, what's the, what is the seedbed or the preparation for, the, for, the, for a community to, to engage in the way that, that you are advocating? 
I think it's a lot of mod. I mean, these, you know, look, these students, we spend 15 weeks together three times a week. So um, I guess it's not the same as living together, but I mean, we do have, we do have time, which gives us time to sort of play with ideas, not only play with ideas, but also circle back to things a lot. Um, and so a lot of it is sort of just talking through recognizing and sort of repeating the practice of what's going in you know, there. Sometimes we'll start the class by talking about, you know, whatever's going on in the world, whatever the latest thing is, you know, in terms of controversy or whatever, and sort of talking about that. Like I'll, I let them bring up a lot of, um, bring up a lot of topics and stuff that they're interested in um, and sort of, Real, you sometimes what I've done in the past is I'll say, you know, bring me a topic that you think is, you know, straightforward, like sort of cut and dried, like, you know, in terms of a controversial issue, like bring it, you know, bring me something that you think is cut and dried. And I will try and come up with some questions that make it at least a little less cut and dried. You know, and 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 I said, you know, try, don't bring me something like, you know, the Rwandan genocide or something. <laughs> I don't want to do it. Um, but um, but you know, and so that's one way. So I think it's really to answer your question. I think it's the repetition, and and obviously, I think, you know, students work and sort of learn at different paces, and so I think they're not always at the same place. But I think it's the repetition, um, of doing that and sort of thinking about things over and over again. Like I'm just thinking, yesterday we had, I had a guest speaker to the class, um, and he was talking about. He was someone is a former teacher or teacher in Chicago public schools, and he was talking about his experience with an allegation from a student, and um, and his you know the sort of end of the story. He you know he was acquitted and whatever got through this sort of whole legal system and everything. And she was saying one of the, sorry she being one of the students in the class was saying, well, do you think that? She, I don't remember exactly how she phrased the question, but she said something like, well, how do you think, do you think that some of the fact that, you know, the way things turned out for you was due to your, cause he was a white man, was due to your white privilege. And, and so, which is fine. Like that's a, that's fine um, to ask. And, and I said, and he sort of offered his thoughts on that. And then I said, I was like, but you know, how do you know, this is the sort of, again, it's sort of always coming back to the certainty, like, okay, you're calling it white privilege. How do you know, like, how do you know what percent, like how much of it is because he's white? Like, how do you, I'm not saying that the white privilege isn't real or, I mean, I'm not saying like, I'm not, I don't even need to take a stand on it one way or the other, because I'm not even sure what I would say, mm -hmm. but it's just the question of like, okay, he had this experience in the legal system. You've got all these different moving parts. How do you know that it's because of or what, again, what percent of it is because of the fact that he's white? Um, and sort of how do you, what does it mean that that's sort of the default? And so the students were, and she, you know, as soon as I said it, she was like, oh yeah. She was like, yeah, that makes, she said, that's a good question. And I was like, yeah, I don't have the answer. You don't, I don't have to have the answer. You don't have to have the answer. Just think about it. Like rather, so questioning your own defaults rather, and just understanding that we have those defaults, even though I'm not coming in and saying, what do you mean? Like, it's his white privilege. Like, it's obviously not his white privilege. I'm not saying any of that. Like, I'm just saying, how how do you know? Um, 
So that kind of thing. Oh, that's a long answer to your question, yeah. but it's a lot of those kinds of conversations. Yeah. So good facilitation, obviously. Is, yeah, Aspirationally, right. yes. Yes. <laughs> Do you have um, situations where students really get angry at each other, where there, there's intense, like sharp um, kind of anger between people? I really, I mean, I've been doing this for a number of years. I have not had that experience. Like, um, I did have one, I will say I had, I think I had one student a couple of years ago who wasn't very sort of careful and it was a man. He wasn't sort of particularly careful in how he expressed his ideas. Um, and he was, I don't know if he was politically conservative or not. Like, I don't know where he fell, but, and so there was, I do know that there were some students who kind of would bristle at some of the things that he said. And so one of the things that I would try and do is say, like reflect back to him and say like, is this what you mean? Or is this what you're trying to get at? Is this the problem that you're trying to get at or identify like and try and, I think the more, I guess, which brings me to sort of a more general comment, which is that I think one of the things that's been useful is depersonalizing the conversation um, and sort of saying like, okay, well, like giving students the space to say, you know, this doesn't have to be, you can just like, it's almost like you're putting on a hat, like where, where this idea like what would somebody who thinks this say like what might somebody say like you don't have to you by doing this and i will say literally like by doing this you are not endorsing or condemning a particular opinion you are just thinking it through um and so and and i'll do that i'll say and i'll use the same language like i'll say you know i'm just channeling an argument like what would this be like um and so but i think that that distance giving people giving them the rather than what do you think or what is you know like giving them some distance to separate themselves i think can be um can kind of free people up a little bit so i haven't i mean it's entirely possible that people are having their own sort of internal experiences that they're not sharing with me so i can't speak to that but i have not really had the experience where thankfully um you know where things have gotten out of control i mean i think I'm trying to think like there've probably been times over the years like this is one of the benefits of having 15 weeks to sort of talk to people you yeah. know where maybe you back off maybe you just read the room and you're just like yeah let's come back to this next time like you know but that's easy that's easy enough to do like so they think there's some they're probably I don't know that that happens a lot but I mean it probably it's not never yeah 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 it's it's interesting uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was about social media and how mm -hmm. what role do you think social media plays in in these dynamics um and I mean, it seems like a lot of the experience of polarization and the sense of intense division in our society often comes from people's like, online experiences rather than their in-person experiences. In, in, in some yeah. Way. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, look, I mean, social media sort of incentivizes all of the oversimplification that I'm trying to avoid. Um, <laughs> you know, Twitter in particular, I, I'm not on a lot of social media. I mean, I'm on Twitter, but like I don't do a lot with it. Um, but yeah, it actually, it absolutely sort of puts all of the, all of the wrong incentives in place. Like, you know, the more outrage, you know, simplification leads to is you get outrage with simplification and that's the kind and outrage gets tweets and, re, you know, retweets and likes and, and all that other stuff and gets you followers and things like that. So the incentives are all wrong. And then you have the problem of, you know, the algorithms in terms of what you're presented with. In fact, the, um, 
the organization, what is it called? The Institute for Humane Technology or something. I think maybe it's called Tristan Harris's organization. So one of the things, my understanding that they do is sort of, he's working on this problem of those algorithms and the way that they sort of lead people into more, you know, everyone, people talk about this. You start out looking at cat videos and you end up, you know, watching something about, you know, Nazis or whatever. Right, right. And, um, and like part of the way that I think about what I'm doing is um, he's, and again, he's working on a scale that I don't have, or at least not yet. But part of the way that I think about it is he's working on the supply side. I'm working on the demand side <laughs> um, in terms of how people are taking in information and sort of synthesizing it. Yeah. Yeah. So as we're, we're coming up to the, to the top of our hour here. Um, yeah. I'm wondering yeah, if you could talk a bit about the Mill Institute and the Univers University of Austin and mm -hmm. the projects that you're, you're working on right now and, and how that fits into, into, the, into these issues. Yeah, I mean, the Mill Institute, so the Mill Institute was, origi was originally the Mill Center. Well, actually, it was the Mill Center for the Advancement of Critical Thinking, which was what you started out saying. And then it was, then it was shortened to the Mill Center. Um, and then partly because nobody really, critical thinking is poorly defined. Yeah. Um, and people make it, people think it is whatever they want to think it is. Um, and now it's the Mill Institute at UATX. And so, which has been great. I mean, the University of Austin is, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with it or not. I mean, the University of Austin is a new university. I, they don't actually have that name yet. They use their, it's UATX is the name for now until they have an official recognition from the state of Texas, um, which they, which is in process. Um, and so the UATX is, uh, they are hoping to take their first students in, start their first cohort in the fall of 2024 um, and taking applications in the fall of 2023. And what the Mill Institute, and so there's a whole, there's a whole side to the, the administrative side to UATX that I'm not, I'm not fully immersed in. Um, the Mill Institute, what we're doing in particular is, um, a couple of things. One is sort of building and creating resources that can take sort of this approach that we're talking about, leveraging certainty, lowering the stakes in conversations on heated topics, um, and creating resources where t for educators in the classroom um, to, to do that. And hopefully, this is more of a funding issue, hopefully also multimedia resources in terms of videos and things like that. That's one thing we're also working with. We're also working closely with the University of, or sorry, UATX on um, thinking sort of concretely and, and working with them to create the culture of conversation that they are wanting to create and sort of how do you do that and what kinds of things can you put into place? Like, so for example, one of the things that I would love to see them do, we haven't presented this formally to them. <laughs> one of the things I would love to see them do would be, you know, every week, have an email that goes out to the student that actually the whole campus community and pick, you know, whatever issue that week, pick some, you know, hot button issue that's in the news that week. And at the bottom, like describe it in as sort of factual terms as you can and the sort of parameters of the issue and then have a section like every week, there are questions, five questions, three questions, whatever. What are these raise? What does this issue raise? Like, what are the core questions? Like, is it about, is it about, identity? Is it about an intent? Is it about, you know, what are the assumptions like, and then sort of fostering that as building that into as part of the community. So I, I hope, hopefully that will get adopted, but, um, but things like that. And then the third piece is programming. 
Um, so we're doing some programming, some public facing programming um, called Say More, um, which is public events um, where we're trying to get trying to get sort of people talking about um, major contentious issues, but it's not a debate. And um, really the goal is for the participants and the audience to leave with a sense of all of those things that we usually, maybe not all, but like the assumptions that we make tacitly that, the, that are implicit, that don't get said out loud and taking them and making them and saying, this is, no, this is actually, and naming them and sort of examining them a little bit more closely. Um, so that's, so that's kind of what's going on for the Mill Institute. It's been very exciting. Like, and I have a, there's a great team with our, the, the other two women at the Mill Institute. They are fantastic. And so, yeah, it's really good stuff. Awesome. That's, that's a really important work. Um, yeah. Um, I guess as, as a final question and maybe mm -hmm. just picking up from what you were talking about, um, I'm wondering if people listening to this who, who are, who are resonating with what you're saying, who are, who are recognizing some of these concerns in the world, um, but they are, they are different phases of life. Maybe they're young people in high school or, or in college. Maybe they're people in middle age or older people. Um, in, do you have any any suggestions, any tips, any ideas for you know in your day to day life? How can you um, challenge your senses of certainty and, and just I love that question. Increase your exposure to to different perspectives. I love that question. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I would say. I would sort of say two things, one of which you kind of already pointed to, which is perfect, which is that this isn't about, it's not some kind of toolkit that's for, let's like to, you know, gotcha on like the person who ignores, like he disagrees with you or to win a debate. This is about sort of really interrogating our own thinking and inter interrogating other people's thinking, but also interrogating our own. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, there's a lot of, you've got to be willing to do that too. And I don't mean like do the work, like in the way that that term is used, but like, you have to be willing to say like, oh yeah, if nothing is off the table in terms of being questioned and examined, that means all of those things that I'm holding right like this, they get to be questioned and examined too. And in order to do that, you have to name them. Um, and so that's one thing. And then I think I would say in the simplest terms, particularly when it comes to these kinds of heated issues, when you feel that kind of, and we all, I think we all know what that feels like, oh my God, this person must be an idiot. And, um, or like this person is a horrible person or a bigot or a snowflake or whatever to use the terms from the videos, that's coming from certainty. Like it's coming from somewhere. And that is not, and I wanna be super clear, like I'm not saying that there aren't horrible people in the world like there's nothing it's it's the it's the assumption it's the lack of interrogating it it's the lack of questioning it it's the lack of sort of examining where does that come from what am i basing that on or is there another possible explanation that could be true um so that if there's a sort of the simple thing would be you know find when you have that feeling that sense find the uncertainty it's there i'm sorry find the certainty it's there somewhere like it's like name it, it's it's there. You know it's there. That's how you know it's there. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Self self knowledge, know thyself, right? That's yeah. Old, old, yeah. Uh, old yeah. advice there from the Oracle. So yeah, right. Doctor Redstone, thank you so much for your time and for your work, and it's been a real pleasure. To oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure, Jacob.